1: Welcome to New Books in Fantasy and Adventure, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This is your host, Gabrielle Matthew, author of the historical fantasy Falcon series and Girl of Fire, the first in a YA fantasy series. My December interview is with Evan Winter. Orbit released a hardcover of the second book in the Burning series, The Fires of Vengeance, in November. Here's the plot. Desperate to delay an impending attack by the indigenous people of Shida, Tao and his queen craft a dangerous plan. If Tao succeeds, the queen will have the time she needs to assemble her forces and launch an all-out assault on her own capital city, where her sister is being propped up as the true queen of the Omehi. If the city can be taken, if Queen Ziora can reclaim her throne and reunite her people, then the Omehi might have a chance to survive the oncoming onslaught. A little bit about Evan. Born in England, he was raised in Africa, near the historical territory of his ancestors. He always wanted to be a writer, but went to university first, attended bars in two different countries, became a director and cinematographer and eventually became the creative director for one of the world's largest infrastructure companies. All before realizing that the words in his head would never write themselves. So, before he runs out of time, he started writing them down. There's plenty more to read on his website, evanwinter.com, E-V-A-N-W-I-N-T-E-R. It has cool graphics, too. His Twitter account is at Evan Winter, and he's on Facebook at eomwinter. Winter. There are two things you won't find out about Evan on his website. His second language after English was Bemba, which is Zambia's most common local language. And he has double-jointed shoulders, and when he was younger, he could skip with his arms. Evan has agreed to do a short reading before the podcast.
2: Hello, this is Evan Winter, and I'm about to read a short section from Book 2 in the Burning series that began with the Rage of Dragons. So I'm going to read the chapter titled Duma Sibusisu from The Fires of Vengeance. And the short chapter is about Duma, who is uh, from Scale Jayed, Champion Solarin's old scale, and Tau Solarin has asked him if he'll join a new and somewhat experimental unit. Here we go. Duma Sibusiso. Duma couldn't be sure if he was lucky or damned. Night had fallen long ago, and he was sitting cross-legged in the dirt behind the building where they housed the horses. It seemed strange that the animals had a better roof over their heads than anything he'd had growing up, but a lot happened around nobles that was strange. And Duma wasn't one to waste thoughts on foolishness he couldn't control. Instead, he wondered if Tao, champion Solarin had become some kind of noble. He certainly looked like he had, sitting across from Duma in that red and black leather armor. Scale Jayed, Duma thought, had changed Tao. Well, it had changed all of them, but him the most. And Duma knew himself well enough to admit that the man Tao had become was a frightening one. Solarin had always had a way of looking at a man, like he'd just as quick slit his throat as offer a word. But Duma had known that type back home and there was usually something you could do to stop them from actually cutting your neck. The thing that made the new champion most frightening was that, as best Duma could tell, there was precious little to be done if Tau got it in his head that someone had spent more than enough time living already. So Duma wasn't sure if he was lucky or damned. But Tau Larn had come to him that night to ask him to be the sixth man in his new unit. And Duma took pride in that. He looked round at everyone, seeing Uruak, Yaw, Themba, Azima, that pretty lady gifted, and, of course, Tao. Unlike Duma, they'd all done this before, and yet he could still see the anxiousness in their faces. Given what Tao had told him to expect, it made sense. And Duma couldn't say he was looking forward to what they were set to do either. It also made his mouth dry thinking that he was expected to do something Kellen O'Carr hadn't been able to handle. But the way Duma saw it, if Tao and his sword brothers needed him, he'd do his part.
1: Well, a big welcome to Evan Winter, and thank you for doing the reading.
0: Thank you very, very much for having me, Gabrielle. It's a pleasure and an honor to be on the show. Thank you.
1: (laughs) Great. So let's talk about your second book, The Fires of Vengeance. In your series, a people called the omehi are invited by the shirin that should be invaded. (laughs) Tell us about the omehi, do they have special abilities and uh, tell us a bit about their government system.
0: Yeah, yeah, thanks for the question. So the omehi have come to a new land, they're escaping something that we don't yet completely understand when we're um, reading book one. And uh, they've landed on this new land, and there are an indigenous people there. And what ends up happening is that the Omehi justified the displacement of that indigenous people uh, in order to save themselves. And they think that they are uh, right and just in doing that, in large part because they consider themselves and call themselves the chosen people of the goddess. Mm-hmm. Um and a large part of what allows them to do to to displace the indigenous people is that they have the ability to control dragons and bring them to their aid. so yes, the omeki have some pretty awesome uh magical abilities, and they use them uh, to to make sure that they can survive, and they believe that their ability to use these gifts, as they call them uh justify their use. Uh, because, you know, why would the goddess grant them these abilities if not to be able to use them? So that's sort of the, the idea behind the, uh, the society and how they sort of tend to view the world. And in terms of their government, uh, the Omehi are a uh, matriarchal society that is um, basically monarchical. Um, so power rests with the queen. The queen gets her power, uh, gets her authority from the divine, from uh, as a matter of divine right from the goddess. Uh, and it's sort of similar to a lot of uh, monarchy, monarchy that we would know in our own, our own world. Uh, and, and that sort of sets up the, some part of the internal struggle in the society as well, that we sort of explore through book one and into book two.
1: So the Shirin aren't actually invading the Omehi the way it seems in the beginning of the second book. They're more defending where they used to live.
0: That's exactly right. And given a, uh, a sort of big event that happens at the end of the first book, which I, just in case that people haven't read it, I won't spoil, but there's a big event that happens at the end of the first book that prompts Vizidine to take even more aggressive action than they have in the past, which is why they are about to attack, uh, sort of in full force, uh, the, the, the little strip of land that the Omehi have have managed to hold on to for generations.
1: Well, much of your second book continues to focus on the Omehi warrior, Tao. He's a young warrior of common birth, but through lots of training and brave fighting, he transcends his class, and in the second book, he becomes the queen's chosen warrior. Tao says, we'll burn our pain to ash in the fires of vengeance. Can you elaborate a bit on his feelings and what he's been through?
0: Yeah, no, thank you for the question. That's a great one. I think that um, in large part the reason that Tao feels the way he does, that it's an overwhelming sort of rage and frustration. And that stems from the fact that for his entire life, for the entire lives of everybody that he knows that exists in his family, um, they have had so few options for leading a uh, an existence of security, of opportunity, uh, of happiness, um, everything can be taken away from them in an instant uh, or at the whim of anyone from one of the higher classes. The, uh, the Omehi are a strict caste society, and Tao and his family are, uh, belong to some of the lower classes, and their lives are not treated as being of equal value to the lives of the nobles. Um, and so typically what ends up happening for someone like Tao is they live out this very, very subsistence and meager existence until the day that they die, either in war or probably from partial starvation or sickness, uh, he's been he finds a way to create, he finds a way to become very, very powerful in his society. And so it's an expl- the books and the story are an exploration of what happens when someone who was powerless and was always meant to be powerless finally finds some level of power in a world and society. That has always sought to grind the group to which he belongs under the heel of their boot.
1: That's very well put. So, a priestess, one of the chosen, tells Tao that the powerless think too simply. She obviously means him. She says, They see things as either right or wrong, but the world and the purpose of those in it are distorted, misjudged when reduced to so basic a binary. Does Tao experience, on some level, does he experience himself as powerless, even though he's an exceptional warrior?
0: Yeah, I think I think that he does. I think that sort of the history and the context of his past um, holds him to a certain level, even though he has, within his within the context of the society, managed to rise. Um, so it's also the fact that. All the people that he knows growing up, knew growing up, all the people that matter to him typically, uh, within his closest circles are people that have not managed to find their path, uh, a a path out of the misery that is sort of the, just the natural state of their lives in the society. So the problem with, the problem with being a person like Tao is that when there's a societal structure that restricts people from being able to, uh, live equally among one another, just because someone like Tao, who is truly exceptional, manages to find a way out of that level of oppression it doesn't mean that the society is more fair it doesn't mean that pow actually has that much power because everyone he cares about still suffers under that system of oppression and you you shouldn't have to part of the point of that i think and the way that he feels is that you shouldn't have to be exceptional to escape uh to escape i guess an awful awful situation in a society and it's easy to sort of maybe suggest that, oh, well, look, you can point to Tao, within within the, the Omei society, um, the nobles can point to Tao and say, um, things are reasonable, things are fine in the way that we do uh, everything, in the way that we consider meritocracy, because someone like Tao has managed to rise so far. Mm-hmm. Um, but you shouldn't have to lose half your mind to do it. You shouldn't have to suffer what he had to suffer uh, to do it. And that's sort of some of the point, I think, that's happening there uh, from, his, from Tao's point of view.
1: So, in Tao's point of view, he has very clear feelings about the roles of dragons in a May society as well. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the dragons and why Tao would have strong feelings about the way they're treated?
0: Uh, yes, that's a, that's a tricky question. and I'm going to try to answer it without spoiling very much again. <laughs> Let's see. I'll say, <laughs> I'll say this. Um, in the beginning, all all the Omehi understand that, or believe, because it's their, it's sort of their cultural teachings, that they are the chosen people of the goddess. And as part of that, they have the ability to call down dragons to their, to aid them, uh, and to defend them. They call dragons guardians. Um and as we go through the story, we start to learn a lot more about the nature of that relationship between the chosen, the Omehi, and their dragons. Uh, and it puts Tao in a very interesting position as he starts to understand what is actually going on and why it's going on. Um, and then he also starts to become a bit of a weapon for his society, at least in the eyes of um, sort of the, the royalty, the royal class of the monarchy, specifically the queen. And, and so then he starts to be put in a position where he plays a role very similar to the role that the guardians play. And given what he learns about them and the nature of that relationship, it sort of sets up an interesting series of sort of questions and, and, uh, and, and sort of leads you to wonder about Cal's motivations, the Queen's motivations, and where we end up going from here. At least that's what I, that's what I hope happens in the story. And, and those are some of the more exciting and interesting questions for me to explore as I was uh, writing it. Yeah,
1: so you mentioned the Omey Queen's character and it's more developed in book two, uh, it seems like even her own ministers don't take her seriously. Is that a mistake on her part?
0: I think I think it definitely is a mistake, and it, <laughs> because Queen Ciara is someone who very much deserves to be taken seriously, and to do otherwise is to greatly underestimate the type of person that she is. Um, I think that what happens is the people, the other royal nobles, um, the other greater nobles who are who end up being the other power brokers in society, see wow. the path that the queen, their young queen, is taking to be um, counter to their own goals, to be counter to the way that they think the the Omehi need to go to maintain um, their way of life. And so they resist her. And so some, so perhaps they also do understand that she's not, necessarily a weak person but they believe that letting even though she's their monarch letting the queen guide them along a path that reduces their own power is something they just are it's something that's intolerable to them um and i think that's sort of uh, i i think that's not unlike uh, most powerful people and most examples of power that we see even in in, in our world
1: mm-hmm yeah, she's, a, she's in some ways a figurehead. But Tao, mm-hmm. is, is he willing to serve her the way that she
0: wishes? I think that they both, at the start of their relationship, I think that they both seek to, I don't, want, I don't even want to use the word use each other, because I'm not sure that they necessarily see it that way. But I think that they both understand that they have something to gain from the other. And so they're looking to gain that. And again, even given the way that the sort of you know, Mehi culture is, they're probably both seeing it as a an end justifies the means kind of situation where uh, if they get where they're going, um, however they end up treating one another, and some, to a certain degree, however they end up treating the rest of their society, uh, can be justified. And mm-hmm. that's a dangerous sort of line of thinking to go down. And I think we start to see in the Fires of Vengeance, which is to too some of the repercussions of, of, of that type of thinking.
1: So your series reflects an African sensibility. Uh, tell us where you lived while you were growing up and how your own ancestral roots are reflected in the story you choose to tell.
0: Yeah, I grew up in Zambia, which is basically uh, right along the equator in Africa, and um I had, I loved growing up there. I mean, I didn't know anything different, but even looking back after having moved several times since, it was a wonderful place to grow up and explore and to just learn uh, who I was as a young person uh, in the world. Um, I think that what I tried to draw into the books, into the story, was an understanding of geography, of landscape, of culture, of people, of, of language, in, in insofar as the different kinds of sounds that we don't often have to make uh, with our mouths in the West or even see on a page in the West. I felt, I felt like it was very important to me to try and bring some of that in bring the heat of, of, of the country into, mm-hmm. the, into the books, uh, bring the sort of the, the, the feel of the cloth and the clothing that people wore, the way they spoke to one another. Uh, I'm not drawing specifically from the myths or the, or the actual history of Africa or Zambia or the Zosa who were uh, part of the inspiration for the type of story, but I am trying to draw from my own memories of what it felt like to live in a place that um, uh, that we don't often see in epic fantasy. Uh, I grew up reading epic fantasy and adoring the genre. I still do, um, and but I never got to see stories that sort of reflected the world that I knew as I was reading a bunch of these growing up, and and so the Razor Dragons and the Burning Series is is sort of my attempt to take from to take from the, the genre that I love so much and give a little bit more of who I think I am essentially uh, in, into that into that type of story, because I didn't really get the chance to see that very much.
1: Yeah, you're carrying your own sense memories and creating a world out of that. Mm. I definitely agree. Uh, epic fantasy seems to center around medieval Europe, especially the UK area, perhaps France. So, yeah, it's nice to... Hear more and more voices from around the globe. Well, as a self-published author, you took the fantasy world by storm in 2019 with your first novel, The Rage of Dragons, which did include a marvelous cover. You've now signed a four-book deal with Orbit. What in your background might have helped with your success? Uh, for example, do you think you invested more financially in your books than the average indie author, or did you have other knowledge through your prior career choices?
0: Oh, yeah, that's actually a, another really good question. And um, yeah, I think that my background did help. I, I ran my own sort of very small boutique production music video production company, and I also worked in sort of uh, have a bit of a marketing background as well. And um, when I actually first self-published The Rage of Dragons, it was in uh, the fall of 2017. And what was uh, really important to me was I'd I'd done as much reading as I could about sort of the overall publishing industry and where the indie world fit in with that. And I sort of learned that, on average, around 2,000 books, new books, are published every single day when you include indie books in in, in the trade books as well. And um, with that sort of information, I was kind of thinking to myself, well, how does any one book get any attention? How does that work um, when there's two thousand new books every single day? Plus, with the digital world, you have permanent access to almost everything from you know from the beginning of publishing. And I guess my thinking was that it's not. So my thinking was that a key part of having readers find your work is visibility, uh, and one of the powers of online and indie. Uh, book publishing is that there are tools that allow you to advertise and to promote a book uh, that in a way that you can try and find readers who are the ones most likely to enjoy the type of story you're telling. And, and that was a large part of what I wanted to do. I wanted to say, I'm going to learn some of these online platforms, ad platforms. I'm going to try and figure out um, how to find readers who would be interested in, in the story that's being told here, and then hopefully make the book visible to them and then Ideally, they'll give it a shot and and enjoy it. Uh, Good marketing is never, I mean, really good marketing, uh, I would think, is never an attempt to sell somebody something they wouldn't want anyway. It's never an attempt to present, you you know, your book, your product, whatever you want to call it, in front of someone who has no interest. That doesn't serve you as the marketer, and it doesn't serve the, the customer that you're maybe trying to get because they wouldn't want your thing anyway. And if they were to try it, they'd hate it maybe. Um, but with online advertising, you can really sort of find people who are interested uh, in the type of thing that you've, you've made. So in terms of did I spend more than the than the average indie or did I focus more on that? I think maybe if you use the word average, it, it would definitely be true. <laughs> uh, I did uh, because it was a large part of my sort of idea about how you even have a chance at all of, of getting your book to be to given a shot. Um, there's an idea that, you know the best books will rise, you know, or, or American wow. will, will make all the difference. And it's, but 2,000 books a day, how do you even get to, how do you even get to find out which ones are the best? And who are we talking about when we say the best? Because the best book for a romance reader will not be the best book for a thriller reader, will not be the best book for an epic fantasy reader. So you have to sort of, I think, a little bit create those opportunities. And, and that's just about making your book visible.
1: Right, and you also invested, for example, in cover art that Mm -hmm. made people look twice, which getting a good cover art is an investment as opposed to just downloading a pre-made cover. So it definitely paid off for you. Oh, thank thank you. Well, I've got one last question reflecting back on November, which is when we're recording the interview so that we can get it up for December, it's a comrade of Tao, a quote from Hadith. He asks, at its essence, isn't true leadership simply service? And that question, could that be pertinent to the results of the recent presidential election in the USA?
0: Hmm. Yep, that's a tough one. And I think that I do believe that Hadith is right. Um, uh, Leadership at its essence should be service. Uh, Otherwise, one leads for one's own self-aggrandizement or one's own benefit and not for anything else. So true leadership at its heart is is service. Um, Is that pertinent to the recent U.S. election? I mean, I think the difficult thing is that in the U.S., they tend to be primarily two sides. You, you know, there, there are occasionally third parties, and, and they pull a few votes. But the overall system and the overall rules of the system uh, over generations have sort of pushed um, have pushed towards a two-party system in America. Mm-hmm. So the voters, you know, the 360-odd million people in America, uh, maybe it's up to 4 million now, they have two choices to make. Um, and the funny thing about believing, even if you believe that quote, And you want to vote based on that quote. The funny thing is that voters on both sides will believe that they have voted for someone who will do that. They will believe that they have voted for uh, congresspeople, governors, uh, and the president, who will do those, and the vice president, who will do those things.
1: That's Um, true. Mm
0: -hmm. That's also, I think, that's also what I think I'm trying to tackle in in a lot of the questions that I'm asking in in this series um, and that I'm exploring is, the power of perspective and the difficulty one has in in changing another's worldview or their mindset. Um, even even something as even something as inflexible as truth should seem to be ends up being, it ends up being incredibly flexible because it's even the even an attempt to define truth depends on where one stands when one attempts, when one attempts that definition. Um, so, Hadith I think is right. Uh, I personally think so. But the funny thing is, people who cast votes for either party in the previous election would also, a lot of them would also think Hadith was right, and they would also all think that they had done what Hadith would have suggested.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a matter of perspective, isn't it?
0: Well, what are you working on now? Um, I'm actually working on uh, book three of the series, it's a four book series in total. And I'm working on book three right now and, uh, you know, trying to do as much writing and as much uh, careful writing as I can in in the very, very weird and odd and difficult kind of horrible year that 2020 has been. Uh, so, and I think a lot of that's actually uh, seeps into the writing. And perhaps luckily for me in some weird kind of awful way, the book tries to deal with, uh, with a lot of the questions I'm asking in the series tend to be heavy and a little bit uh and a little bit difficult. Mm-hmm. and so I, I've been able to mine a lot of what happened in 2020 because 2020 has almost been this weird crucible for, for humanity and we've gotten the chance to really observe how people behave on uh, masse when we're sort of really when tensions get ratcheted up. Um, and so I hope to put as much of, as much of my perspective on truth <laughs> from what I've observed in the books as, as possible right? Uh, and even, and even going back to your other question about the election, when I say that there's the perspective, I think this is, this is important for me to say, which is why I'm jumping back. Uh, I'm definitely not a sort of a both sides kind of person. There, are, it, it, it is not that often when both sides have equal access to 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 verifiable uh, or, or at least equal access to observable facts. To to um, to an ethic of decency and humanity uh, and, and and equality, it's not often the case of that, that 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 is so. Um, and 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 so although it becomes and so the, and although we've sort of come to this place in history where we try very hard to be like, oh, there's two sides to every story. There are two presentations, or there are, and there are many more presentations to every story. But reasonable sides are often far fewer than are presented. So. You know I just thought I, should, I need to say that as well.
1: that's a good point. So personally, uh, looking at the facts and uh, you've developed some conclusions which aren't necessarily part of the show today. <laughs> but that's what I hear you saying. Okay. well, yeah. thanks so much for making time for us
0: today. My pleasure entirely. Thank you for making the time as well.
1: Thanks for joining me today. On the New Books Network in Fantasy and Adventure Channel, I've been talking to Evan Winter about the second novel in his burning series, The Fires of Vengeance. I'll kick off the new year with an interview with the writing duo, the couple Gordon and Ilona, who write best selling urban fantasy with a touch of romance under the name Ilona Andrews. They have fun collaborating, and it comes across in their interview. I'm your host, Gabrielle Matthew, author of the YA Fantasy Girl of Fire, the first in the Barona's Quest series. You'll find the podcast schedule on my website, GabrielleMatthew.com. You can also follow me on Twitter to get updates about new podcasts and more. I'm on there at Author. So till next time.